this afternoon or this morning, and uh, we're going to hear from him now. And I just ask one thing, you know, let's, most of us folks are locals. So let's don't hold it against him because he's from California. <laughs> but he's an okay guy anyway. Tell you, <laughs> tell you one thing about him, and I'm not going to steal a whole lot of secrets. He's been sober for 37 years. Cliff R. from California. Hi, my name is Cliff Roach, and I'm an alcoholic. You see the rats desert the sinking ship? Uh, man, did they scurry off, huh? Very glad to be here. Thank you for inviting us. My Al-Anon and I love to come, especially together. Uh, I always loved talking with Bobby. I don't know what the hell it is the last, what, five, ten years. These very, very astute People invite Bobby and I together, huh? We're like frickin' frack, for God's sake, so on the circuit. Uh, must be the Irish Catholic thing, I don't know. And uh, I just love the guy. I just uh, Every time I get to be with him, I just get the biggest kick. He's a real man. Well, when, when I drank, that was my ambition in life, was to be a real man. My idea of a real man was that if I came in the room, you would be afraid. I drank enough, I thought you were. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I like Bobby. I was raised in this Irish Catholic deal. And my father had been at one time the middleweight, oh, the first leading contender for the middleweight championship of the world. My Uncle Jack was this big, huge mick. And he would just go into a saloon and wipe it out. He was a legend around our area. He'd just destroy a whole bar. And, uh, you know, I was... 99 pounds and a, had a back problem, big yellow streak down the middle of it. And, uh, <laughs> thank you very much. But I wanted to be a real man. To me, a real man was a tough guy. As I said, I think my pal over there is a real man. Uh, he's been through several cancer operations and uh, all kinds of things like that. And he just keeps going with a smile on his face and shows up wherever anybody asks him and loves everybody and is kind to everyone. And so I think he's a real man. Uh, of course, I've had to change my idea of what a real man is. And AA has done that for me. Uh, okay, uh, I love your... whatever the hell it is. Uh, <laughs> slogan. Well, it threw me off. Usually it's behind you, you know. <laughs> Makes it easy on the speakers. Uh, celebrate the miracle, huh? And if you're new, I want to tell you, Bobby is not the miracle. God knows Tina's not the miracle. And even Wallace, in all his glory, is not the uh, miracle, and neither am I. The miracle is the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the program, if you're new, is 1 through 12. Step 1 through step 12, that is the miracle. And if you do 1 through 12, it will happen to you. 
your life will change, and you will change. And some of the most beautiful women can become a real man. No, I didn't like that. Uh, what are you saying? So don't get confused because we have speakers here, blah, blah, blah. The miracle is 1 through 12. That's the miracle. And I celebrate the miracle. It will work for anyone. Is that Bobby? (laughs) After that pink shirt, I did not. I'm going to be a real switch for you. We've had... Tina, you know, 14 years old and took drugs and uh, distorted life and uh, was in a nut house, huh? That always gives you a stature on the program. If you do a few nut houses, that helps. Prison's good. Prison's good. Uh, not as good as death row. That, man, you're, you'll be a, you know. I'm a little fat school teacher, drank too much. Uh, so I'm kind of a switch here. We all, what the hell? Uh, and, uh, you know, I kind of got a little resentment with Bobby and, and Tina talking about how they got sober, and after a few years, they quit beating people with baseball bats. And uh, not Tina. I'm sorry, Tina. No, I didn't include you in that. And, uh, but then they went to college and got degrees. I did it drunk, for God's sake. You didn't think you had it tough. You try it drunk, see how it works. <laughs> Magnificology. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a functioning alcoholic. I'm not like these low-bottom people you've heard and will hear from. Uh, man, that's a story. <laughs> If you miss tomorrow morning, you're out of your mind. This guy's got a story that'll make your blood curl. (laughs) It's one of the greatest stories in Alcoholics Anonymous I've ever heard. So don't miss tomorrow morning. And many of you missed my Al-Anon this morning, and she she was fantastic as always. I think... I assume the applause for the ones who were here... (laughs) and I, you know, you miss it. You're just missing something if you're at a convention and you paid your money to be here, and etc. You're, you're missing a bet if you miss the Allen on me, because, you know, they've got a story, a real story too. I know some of us don't want to hear that story. If you're new and still raw, you don't want to hear about that. You know, there's something worse than I always hear about AA's talking about being lonely. There's something worse. There's something lonelier than being a person like me. It's somebody who loves a person like me. That's loneliness. That's real loneliness. And to hear my wife's story, and I never argue with what she says on, on the story because I wasn't there. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Now, most of my life is hearsay. <laughs> wasn't yours? I spent my whole life saying, I did? <laughs> oh, God, I'm sorry. Your aunt, huh? Oh. So, you know, when she said something, of course, she's admitted since we've been on the program, she used to make make up stuff, made it worse. So that I would feel guilty or, you know. 
when we got here, we were in just horrible, horrible shape. Pat told you about it. Those who weren't here, though, we had been married 20 years. You know, we got married in college. We had had this suicide pact together. Uh, and, and we had the, the dual disease. We had alcoholism and Catholicism. And, uh, yeah. We had a kid every nine months and 20 minutes. Well, it seemed like to me anyway. Every time I come out of a blackout, who the hell is that? Well, they're all right when they're little, you know, like kittens. They're like, but ours grew, and we had five of them. And the older they got, the weirder they got. God knows the weirder she got. And, uh, and uh, Oz the head nut. And as we said, I was a teacher, and uh, we moved to Oceanside in 1961. And uh, I got a job there at Oceanside High, and uh, I taught in that district for the rest of my career, 35 years. And I was, if I say so myself, I was a good teacher. I loved the kids. The kids loved me. I loved teaching, and I was good at it. Somebody asked my wife one time, how come your husband's such a good high school teacher? She said, well, he's a very well-educated adolescent. <laughs> I hate it when they're accurate and cruel, don't you? Yeah, but I, you know, I did well. And, of course, we moved to Oceanside. I became a surfer did. Uh, you know, if you're a macho guy, a real man, you gotta be a, if you live by the ocean, you've got to be a surfer dude. And I loved surfing. I, oh, I loved it. It was uh, one of the most greatest experiences I ever had. I surfed until I was 74 years old. Not many people do that. You should have seen me that last couple of years. Out there. <laughs> the kids love me. Help Mr. Roach back on his board. There you go. But in 1965, before a lot of you were born, I'm quite aware of that, uh, I, uh, my buddy and I, Woody, we got a surf shop down at the beach there in Oceanside. Going to make a fortune, never have to teach school again. You know, the mayor of the town donated a little building right on the beach. Can you imagine? Right on the water. It was all beat up. We had to fix it up. And we painted it, put windows in, and got a refrigerator. Uh, Four or five months later, we got some surfboards, too. <laughs> no real big hurry on that. <laughs> and we had these two chaise lounge chairs. Can you beat that? For two drunks right on the beach, on the water. We became sunset connoisseurs. Somebody came down in the evening and said, I'd like to rent a surfboard. Screw off, Charlie. We're watching the sunset. <laughs> we used to measure sunsets by martinis. That glass, that cup reminds me of those martinis. <laughs> I was the mixer. I'd say, it looks like about an eight tonight, Woody. And we'd mix up the martinis and watch the sunset in our chaise lounge chair. Oh. One time we had a 15 martini sunset. <laughs> oh, you should have seen. It was glorious. <laughs> and the sun and Woody and I went right together. 
They found us in the morning with sunburned mouths. You remember that? I think that should be on the 20 questions. Did you ever have a sunburned mouth? Get out of here. You ain't ready yet, pal. Come back when you're ready. There's a guy, guy talked in Texas with on the 20 questions he wants to put. Have you ever been run over by your own car <laughs> while you were driving it? <laughs> well, we did great with that surf shop. I started at 20 till, I think. For the clock watchers, I always like to follow along. Uh, 20 till. So when it comes 9 o'clock, don't start moving your lips. Uh, 20 till. All right. And so we did well with that surf hop, made money. But uh, in 1965, February of 1965, I went down to the shop on a Sunday morning. We were closed. Of course, it was freezing cold. And, uh, and uh, Woody had been at the shop the night before. And I went in there just to repair a board on a Sunday morning. I had a hangover. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was thirsty. And uh, I went to the refrigerator to see if there was a Coke in there or something. And uh, and I opened the refrigerator, and Woody had been there the night before, and he left about this much vodka and a half pint and a little bit of orange juice there in the refrigerator. And I thought, oh, that'll put the fire out. So I mixed up that little dinky drink. I wasn't a morning drinker, but I needed it. <laughs> so I drank it down and went on about my business, and I'm standing away. And this is for the newcomers, because I drank like a half a shot of vodka. And that little bit of vodka got in my bloodstream. You know how it'll do? And when it got there, my mind talked to me. And my mind said, shame on you, Cliff, shame. That was Woody's booze you drank. Why don't you go up to the liquor store, get old Woody a pint. That's the kind of guy I am. That afternoon, I got Woody a fifth. You've been there. You know that, huh? And you know what happened by that. I, I finished the fifth, and uh, I had to crawl home on my hands and knees. I was so drunk. And I got home, and I fell in bed and got up the next morning and called Alf for an inordinate amount of time. You remember Alf. Don't you hate it when you get down to just you? Oh, I hate that part. Uh, and I lurched out, and uh, my wife, Pat, was in the pre-stages of Al-Anonism at the time. She had one of those pre-Al-Anon ticks of the eye. And, uh, couldn't let her go downtown doing that. you know. And, uh, and I said, i got to do something about my drinking. I'm getting drunk when I don't even mean to. And the little devil, I don't know why she'd done it, but she, out of the paper, she'd cut this little ad about the A&A. &A. I don't know why she thought to do that. And the, same, the only ad we've ever had, as far as I know, or as far as I'm concerned, it's the only ad we ever need. And it says, if you want to drink, that's your business. If you want to quit, call Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it. I love it. I think it's perfect. 
And we're not a hospital and we're not a treatment center and we're not a 12-step house and we're not a do-good society. Hell, we're not very nice people. <laughs> but if you're new and you want to stay sober, this room is filled with people who go to the ends of the earth for you if you want it. If you don't want it, have at it, pal. At home, we have a salute. Uh, <laughs> we're kind of crude out on the coast. What are you going to do? But anyway, I called Alcoholics Anonymous there in 1965. And the guy came out like that night that he get me. Old Stan died with 53 years of sobriety. Little, a big old guy. Just a quiet moose. Never saw a microphone in his life. Would have dropped dead. Uh, and anyway, he came and got me. Took me to three or four. There were only about 12 meetings in the North County at that time. After about three days, I realized I had been hasty. <laughs> I had jumped the gun here quite a bit because I was not impressed. They seemed to have the collective IQ of an orange. Now, as I told you, I've got degrees, you know. My late sponsor, Bill, used to say, he's been educated far beyond his intelligence. <laughs> but I'm sorry, these guys... I tried to help him. Uh, about the third night, third, third me, I started to lay a little Nietzsche on him. And this guy says, hey, we keep it simple here. I said, no kidding. Oh, you're going to fool me, Leroy. Uh, so I resigned from AA. Uh, have, have you ever done that? Really upsets them, doesn't it? <laughs> Cliff who? <laughs> and so if you're new, plug your ears. For the next five years, I was an AA loser. I mean a real loser. I was an overeducated, pompous ass, jerk, loser. I'd come to AA for 30 days and I'd be drunk for two years. Then I'd come back to AA for a year for 30 days, and I'd be gone for a year and a half. And any time I was here, I had that smirk on my face. You know, my head, the little head bobbed. And I looked down on you poor peasants. And then I'd go back out there and die some more, you know. And every time I'd come here, they'd say, Cliff, if you stay here, your life will get better. Or at least it will change. If you go back out there, it's going to get worse. And I would smirk in their face. And I would take my education, and I'd go out there and die some more. I think I'm much more an uh, example of AA than any of the other speakers, or any of the spe most of the speakers you hear. Because I'm just a regular, d d every day, dyed-in-the-wool, drunk. I go to work every day and do the job. And I go home and get bombed every night. So I get up in the morning, call Ralph. My dad used to say, if you eat breakfast and, you, and, and go to work, you're not an alcoholic. He never said a word about puking breakfast back up again. <laughs> so I eat breakfast, puke, and go to work. I'm a goer and a doer and an achiever. I'm a functioning alcoholic. <laughs> My buddy Holmes is a functioning alcoholic. who's one whose wife works. 
Don't tell that in Al-Anon meeting out there. No, no. They do not find that amusing. Make them do the old pre-Al-Anon. He married that, don't you remember? Don't you think you had a few too many? No, I think you had a few too few. That's your problem. Have a couple to loosen up, for God's sake. She was a counter. The counters are the worst ones. That's your fifth one today. Eh, Shut up and eat your breakfast, will you? Leave me there. But see, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the experts, whoever the hell they are, the experts on alcoholism say that 95 to 97% of us who die of the disease of alcoholism, who become dead from alcoholism, are people like me, functioning alcoholics, who go to work every day and come home and get bombed every night until the liver goes or the, the stomach ruptures from the ulcer. You know, where you, you're just strangling your own vomit, or you're stabbed by dull scissors. Uh, and one night she said, you've got to go to sleep sometime. <laughs> Not for three weeks, I don't have to go to sleep. And car crashes and uh, all the ways we die. My mother died on Skid Row at the age of 43. And she fell down a flight of stairs in a drunken scooper and broke her neck. And on her death certificate it says, accidental fall. They don't even know how to count the number of ways we die. So I love to hear good stories, you know, prisons and nut houses, and the things that give you stature on the program. But i got to remember, most alcoholics who die are people like me. Just regular, everyday drunks. And... Uh, and so on and on and on. The week I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, this time, 37 and a half years ago, I weighed 163 pounds. I had a 4% body fat. I used to surf for like three hours and then get out and run five miles. I could bench press 285 pounds. It took me 25 minutes to pass a mirror. <laughs> For God's sake, don't ask me for corrections. I say it's right over. <laughs> My daughters used to get money from me when I didn't have a shirt on, which was most of the time. My, one of my daughters would come up and say, V up for me, Daddy, V up. Oh, oh, can I have five dollars? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I had to I tell you, I was two years sober before I figured that out. And, uh, and on and on it went. Uh, five, four or five years before I quit drinking, I, I didn't mention that I was one of the top debate coaches in the United States. And I became one of the top debate coaches in the United States by mistake. I was teaching a speech class, so the principal called me in one day and asked me to take some kids down to a debate tournament at San Diego State College, 30 miles down the road. So I found some kids who wanted to go, and we went down there. We were amazed. These, these speech tournaments are big deals. There were like 50 schools, you know, 500 contestants, 
All the boys were in three-piece suits and vests and ties. The girls were in these lovely business clothes. We're Levi's inspectors. What the hell do we know? And they killed us. We did not win a round. I mean, we got slaughtered. They ground us in their tusks, what they did. I don't know what kind of drunk you are, but I don't care for losing. It kicks me off. And I went in the coach's room. And there were about 20 of them in there. And they're old pals. They've been doing this for years, their buddies. And they snubbed me. It seemed to me. One guy that really ticked me off, he had a lot of hair. That bothered me right away. And I had dinner tonight with Chuck. And I kept looking across the table at Chuck. You know, that silver gray, gorgeous. Took nine barbers to get it right. You know, in this speech coach, he had a suit that was worth about $2,000. The other coaches did this when they went in front of him. And this gray-haired guy suddenly turns to me. He says, where are you from? God, I was grateful to be spoken to finally. And I said, Oceanside. And he said, oh, where's that? <laughs> 30 miles up the road. Where's that? I don't know what kind of drunk you are, but he gave me a resentment. <laughs> And I went back to Oceanside High, and I built me a speech team. Took me four or five years, but I built a juggernaut speech team. I built a powerhouse speech team, and I did it with sure hatred. <laughs> From 7 in the morning till 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, I'm in their faces screaming and yelling, Coach Hank! The guy next door said, I'd love to watch them leave your room wiping the spit off their glasses. <laughs> And this reporter said to my captain one time, what's the secret of your coach's success? The kid said, terror. <laughs> hey, she wasn't lying. She's the chairman of the speech department and the chancellor of women's studies at San Francisco State College today. So I didn't do her any harm. A couple bruises on her butt, but forget about it. I felt so sorry for Bobby Knight. They fired her for choking one guy. Uh, <laughs> And it was a guy. Do <laughs> you know how hard that is? Do you have any idea how hard that is to make 150 people do what they don't want to do? From 7 in the morning till 9.30 or 10 o'clock every night. I don't eat all day. Eh, better that way. Drink 400 cups of coffee. And stay pissed off. And out in the glove compartment of the car waiting for him is a half a pint of hot vodka. Seal unbroken. I don't drink all day. I'm a functioning alcoholic. I got that half a pint of hot vodka waiting in the glove compartment, calling to me all day. Go get him, Cliff, baby. I'm waiting, darling. <laughs> and I finished with my last kid in the evening. Yeah, can I miss her? Out to the car and open up that hot vodka. Like one of those cheap stogies I smoked in those days. You probably did this too. Always drank half a half pint. Oh, is there anything like hot vodka? <laughs> I love talking about hot vodka to Alan on me. They go, yeah, yeah. But you and I know. <laughs> in the bloodstream it goes, you know. 
and the muscles relax and my brain subsides. I puff on my stogie in the darkness of that car. An empty campus in me. And I would think, God damn it, a good coach. <laughs> and I'd finish that pint of hot vodka, sit there in the darkness of that campus in my 58 Chevy Space Wagon. <laughs> you should have seen that car. It should be in the archives. Alcoholic claw. One time I was drunk, I painted with house paint. No. When I come to a four-way stop sign, they all go, oh, go ahead, right in there. <laughs> and sitting there in the darkness of that 58 Chevy all alone, I would have my eight minutes. And I don't know what your story is. I'm sorry, I don't know your story. I just know mine. But in my case, after I drink for about a half an hour, Something happens to me, and I have about eight minutes where everything in my life is all right, where I am enough for about eight minutes, and I almost gave my life for that eight minutes. I almost died for that eight minutes. Because like Tina, I was raised in one of those alcoholic zoos with the violence and the hatred and the craziness. And all my life I just lived on the edge of psychosis. One step either way and I'm gone. I lived with anger and hatred and vengeance. That's all I knew. But for eight minutes a day, I was all right. If you'd have stopped me on the street and said, what's serenity? I would have said it's about eight minutes, half, half an hour into my drinking. That is, that's the only serenity I had ever known. And I always think it's interesting to point out the five years that I was a loser in AA, in and out, I never once told you about the eight minutes. Not once. And then I would go home and really start drinking, and I'm a violent drunk, and a sarcastic, mean, cruel, vicious drunk, and I got drunk every night at home. And I turned our house into a zoo. I made my folks look like pumpkins. It was a zoo. Everybody in that house was crazy. And uh, But I built that speech team. Uh, well, three of my kids were in high school in the late 60s. That's when it was, the late 60s. Three of my kids were in high school in the late 60s. Our oldest son was working his way through high school as a hatchy salesman. Never had to give him any spending money, I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> I used to hit him up for a fifth about once a week. Yeah, Dad, what do you need? <laughs> had hair down to his butt. Head went like this all the time. <laughs> Called his mother, man. Hey, man, what's for dinner? <laughs> oh, you should have seen. He was a pip. He loved LSD. And they see things, some of you remember. And uh, I'd be right in the middle of a sentence. He'd say, what was that? <laughs> of course, the shape I did, and I'd say, I don't know. What was that? Where? Where? 
my drunken mother-in-law would have whispered, she would say, I'll explain it. <laughs> and Pat and I got laughing recently. We used to say, we used to listen to the explanation. <laughs> and so we were all nuts. Everybody in that house was nuts. It's too late. No human power could ever leave my family. But God could and would through Al-Anon and AA. Anyway, I destroyed my family, but I built this beach team. I'm dying of alcoholism, and I built this beach team. You functioning alcoholics, you're with me, right? You know what it's like to pretend like you're okay. I used to envy Skid Row drunk so much. They just lay there and be drunk and didn't care. It didn't look like anyway. I had to pretend like I was all right. You know, I had to pretend to be a pillar of society when I'm dying of the disease of alcoholism. And uh, I built that speech team, and after a couple of years, we won one of those speech tournaments. But I didn't say anything to the gray-haired guy. It wasn't time yet. We know when it's time, don't we? The next year, there were uh, like 12, 14 tournaments. My, 30 schools in each tournament. And my teams won all of them. We took first place in every single tournament. But I can wait. I think revenge is better than Christmas. Uh, anyway, the next year there was a tournament, and there were 25 schools competing in the tournament. And my team scored more sweepstakes points than the other 24 schools combined. Then I went up to the gray-haired guy. Remember him? I put my nose right against his and I said, Do you know where Oceanside is now? He just looked blank. He said, What are you talking about? I said, Don't you remember four or five years ago, you said to me, Oceanside, where's that? And he said, we just moved here from Nebraska. I didn't know where it was. <laughs> the story of my life. He's in his bed for four or five years every night. I'm up in which says, I'll get you, I'll get you. He didn't even know it. Well, if I drink like that, I have to live like that. And what I never knew was if I live like that, I have to drink like that. And AA has taught me I don't have to live like that. And right after that, Pat and I had that main event she was talking about this afternoon where for years I said, I'm going to move out, and she would beg me to stay. And that night she said, <laughs> uh, have a good trip. And the kids all went, yay, Dad, get the hell out. Uh, they were all glad to see me go. I couldn't understand that. A sweetheart like me. I'm living down at the beach with my buddy and his girlfriend with my surfboard. I went by the house one afternoon after a few weeks, and I was haranguing Pat about money, and the hashy sail was kind of bobbing in the background there, humming a tune from the planet Pluto. And... Uh, and as I look back on it, it's probably the stupidest thing I've ever done in my life, but I turned to my 16-year-old son and I said, Dave, what's it like not to have your old man around the house? 
And my 16-year-old son looked me right in the eye and he said, it's beautiful. And I don't know about you, but uh, it was a couple hours later I was knew that that was my bottom. That's as far as I'm going. I lost respect of a 16-year-old kid. And I am indebted to my son forever because he had more reason to be afraid of me physically than any of the other kids. I was really tough on him physically. And for him to have the courage to look me in the eye and tell me what he told me. So I'm standing here 37 and a half years sober because a 16-year-old kid had enough courage to tell me what I really was. And I went back to that dump in the beach and ran and raved and sniveled and whined. But I did not take a drink. And went out and sat on the screen porch and watched the most beautiful sunset on the ocean I've ever seen. And about the time that the sun was going down into the water, I had what all of us in this room had, BWAA or Al-Anon. I had that moment of clarity the big book talks about. Holly calls it the moment of grace. I love that, huh? The gift. Grace. And I got up from that lounge chair and went to the bedroom and dug out the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I had read in one of my travels for the program. Being an English teacher, I thought it was very poorly written. <laughs> read a lot better this time. <laughs> and if you're new, I read the big book cover to cover. I read it for three days and three nights. I called in sick. I didn't go to work. I ate a little bit, slept even less. And I read the big book cover to cover. All the stories, the appendix in the back. And in the third edition, there was a story called The Professor and the Paradox. And he was another egotistical school teacher. And he saved my life. And on the third time through the book, on the 13th of January, 1970, at 3 o'clock in the morning, I was on page 63 again. And if you're new, on page 63, there's a little prayer. And the prayer is step three. I've always called it the formal terms of surrender. And in my befuddled condition, it seemed like it would be a good idea if I would kneel down on that filthy linoleum floor in the dump where I was living, and if I would read that prayer out loud to myself, which is what I did. I read, God, offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as you will. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And when I was new, I looked up the word bondage. You know what it means? It means slavery. Relieve me of the bondage of self. And I've heard 200 fist steps in my years in the program. And I'm telling you, the number one defect of character of every man I've ever worked with is self-obsession. And that morning I had a kind of a spiritual awakening, and I've never been able to tell you what it was. And then 32 years later, this little girl in Ohio, in the grapevine, she was in a treatment center, and they gave her the book, and she read the book. And then she was 17 years old. She's 23 now, I think. And it seemed to her it would be a good idea if she would kneel down and read that prayer out loud, just as I had done 32 years before. And you know what she said? She said, I was engulfed by a great laughing Love. And that'll do it for me. 
I was engulfed by a great laughing love. And I have not had a drink or anything like that, you know, since I was the 13th of January, 1970. That night I was at Bill Blake's house. My wife talked about him today. Had been a Skid Row wino there in Oceanside. Owned a little electric company. Was an AA fanatic. You know the kind you hate when you're a loser? <laughs> you come in a meeting and they pounce on you. <laughs> Just despised him. But that night I'm knocking on his door. I'm a five-year loser. And a smirking, over-educated, pompous ass loser. And Margie, Bill's wife, opened the door. And if you're new tonight and you don't hear anything else I say, I'm going to tell you what happened to me. This loser's on the porch, and Margie, Bill's wife, saw me. I have never seen anyone so glad to see me in my life. This loser. She said, Cliff. Oh, Cliff. In the house I go. <laughs> Pours me a cup of coffee. Oh, this is wonderful. This is great. Bill's been crazy lately. He said nobody to work with. Oh, this is so good. <laughs> then Bill comes in. Quit! Ah! About a half an hour, I'm thinking, anything else I can do to help you folks out? Uh... <laughs> well, a couple of weeks later, I was in a newcomer meeting, and one of the other newcomers said, what do you mean this is a selfish program? And I knew the answer. I got the answer the night I got here. They were delighted for me. They'd been praying for me for five years. But they were more glad for Bill and Margie. Because Bill and Margie knew the great secret. You can't stay here unless you give it away. You can't have a life here unless you're willing to give it away. My buddy Bobby talked about that and Tina talked about that too. The only salvation for me is to love you. That's all that's left to me. I have to serve you. And was it Bobby? Were you the one who was talking about what your gift is? Everybody has a gift. My sponsor believed that everybody who the AA has a gift of some kind. Something you can do that the rest of us don't do that well that will make our lives better. And he believed that he taught me that if you don't bring your gifts, you have to go back out there and die. And uh, that was that night was the last night he ever said anything nice to me, as long as he lived. <laughs> He was exactly what I needed because I was a pompous, overeducated jerk. And the nicest thing he said to me the first five years was, shut up. <laughs> shut up. I told him I have degrees, you know. <laughs> so does a thermometer, you know, where they stick that <laughs> one. I thought the first step was, Shut up and get the car! <laughs> now, 37 and a half years later, I have come to believe the first step is shut up and get in the car! In the back seat, on the hump. <laughs> hey, there's a method to that, too. I mean, if you're the guy in the middle on the hump in the back seat, you become a 12-stepper. You find a new guy. Hey, come with us. I'm on the window now, baby. <laughs> and he took me to meetings everywhere in Southern California. I, ne I didn't grow up thinking that AA was a meeting in a town once a week. He took me to meetings every night for two years. You want to talk about love? First there was just me, then Al came along, and then Bernie, then Pat and Skip. We had carloads of guys. 
We went all over Southern California. He took us to the meetings where people were having a good time. He took me to where the laughter was. Because he knew me. I couldn't stay here if we weren't having a good time. I'm sorry, but I was more miserable here than I was out there. I go back out there, even if it means dying. Man, we had we went to meetings where they were laughing. Oh, I love the laughter now. I can't live without it. I think laughter is the spiritual part of the program. Nothing I laugh at will ever come back and haunt me again. The things I used to lie awake all night with my teeth grinding my stomach turning, that's funny now the hell with it. Oh, I love the laughter about folks. It just heals me. I love to get me some new guy. Bobby mentioned this this morning or after. When the hell you talk? I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I get me a new guy and I take him to a meeting and I take him to another meeting. To maybe the 12th or 13th or 14th meeting. He's sitting there beside me and he goes, <laughs> Gotcha! I gotcha now! Oh, I love it when they start laughing, huh? It's like stitches breaking in your stomach when you first get I hadn't laughed the, the last two years before I came here. I hadn't laughed at all for two years. The only way I could laugh was like, <laughs> that's if you fell down and got hurt. <laughs> I was over three days of meeting up in L.A. and this guy was going, I went, ah, what the hell was that? You know? Oh, it felt so good. It felt so good. My wife is the Al-Anon. Uh, she's cooler than I am even. But we get brand new Al-Anons, and we bring them to AA speaker meetings like this, you know, and we get her in between us. <laughs> she can't escape that way. And then AA speaker's up here. <laughs> I fell in the Christmas tree and smashed all the presents. <laughs> and we're all going, yeah! <laughs> this new little Al-Anon sitting there. Not funny to her. So we take her to a meeting tomorrow night, you know. One night she throws her head back and laughs. And A.A. or Eleanor, once you start laughing, we gotcha. Because you know you belong here then. And it's a lot of fun for me to talk places and watch the people who don't want to laugh. You know, they have a bracelet on. Uh... <laughs> And, you know, they're just resting up to get the hell back out there, you know. And they go. <laughs> After the meeting, I always chase them nothing. You want to hear it again? <laughs> By the way, you're going to hear, if you're new, you're going to hear a lot of speakers with more time than myself. Uh, there's one right in the front row that doesn't say this either, though, but there are people in AA, long-timers, they'll tell you that, what, 5% of the people make it in AA or 10% or... Well, whatever Mickey Mouse number they make up, we talk from experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all we have. We don't have any philosophy. We don't have anything except our experience. That's what I'm giving you tonight, my experience. And my experience working with hundreds and hundreds of men through the years is I'm with Bill Wilson. Bill Wilson said in 1951 when he talked to the American Psychiatric Association, he said 50% of the people who come to AA never drink again. And another 25%... Go in and out and in and out and then get sober and never drink again. But Bill had a caveat in there. He said 50% of the people who come to AA and earnestly work the steps of the program never drink again. And I think it's better than that. But the people I've worked who earnestly work the steps of the program, I'd say 80% of the people I've worked with 
So I don't know if you're from a, some program where they drag you in, you know, okay, yeah. okay, what the hell, you know. Uh, I sponsor a guy who was court-ordered AA 33 years ago, and I'm still his sponsor. And so you certainly can come here through court programs. That's there. But when I'm talking about that 80%, I'm not talking about people who are forced in and out of here. That's your business. But anyway, how the hell did I get off of that? Well, anyway, uh, my sponsor was so cruel to me, and he made me take the steps, of course, and Bobby covered the steps very well. Uh, but that's the only solution. As I said at the beginning of this talk, the, that is the program, 1 through 12. That is the program. And if you work them, your life will change and you will be better. And he also made me take every kind of stupid thing. I had to stand at the door and greet people. Do you like that? I hate that because I'm a snob. Hi there. What's your name? Like I really... <laughs> and mopped up after your coffee, you know, and uh, drove you to meetings and, uh, you know, hunt down the newcomers and went with him on all his 12-step calls. That was the part that won me over, you know. I wonder how many hundred times I've 12 step the guy and take him to a meeting. You know, when I'm at his house before we go to the meeting, I look in his eyes. Remember our eyes before we came here? Emptiness and then nothingness in there. And take him to a meeting, go to a coffee shop after the meeting, look across the table, and the power's in his eyes lots of times that night, and if that happens to you, you start to believe in this program when you see the eyes change like that. And so I did all these things a man made me do. Like, you know, I had kids who were on drugs, and she wouldn't go to Al-Anon. And she had a mean mouth and uh, owed a billion dollars, remember? Didn't have a brass razzoo, and they were phoning Isabel to let the dogs go. You know, that kind of thing. And I would go to my sponsor and tell him, I had a nervous breakdown, and I'd say, no, they're doing over there now. And I'd tell him the whole dreary story. And he would listen, you know, out. Uh, they listen. <laughs> I found it's good to make a noise once in a while, like, ah. <laughs> that, that way they think you're paying attention. <sighs> but anyway, he never interrupted me. Let me tell the whole dreary story as I'd run down finally. <sighs> <sighs> He would say, go get Al and take him to the meeting. <laughs> What's that got to do with a nervous breakdown? It's like asking a guy, what time is it? A horse is dead. <laughs> but I, on my knees that morning, I gave it up. I gave up. I have an answer to my own, so I would do what the man told me. That's why I'm still here today, because I did what the man said. I went and got Al, whom I despised. He was a ten-year loser. I was only a five-year loser. And he was a big blowhard. And I'd load him in the car. Blah, 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 blah. Drive him to the meeting. We'd set the meeting up. Everybody come. We'd set the meeting down. Wash the coffee pots. Get back in the car. Blah, 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 blah. And I'd let Al off. And I'd start driving home. And this feeling would come over me. Start right here. And then it would just spread out through my body. Just this warm glow. It felt so good it scared me. Because I had never felt good. It was better than the eight minutes ever was. 
That only lasted 40 seconds, you know. I thought it was because I got rid of Al. Uh, but the more I did for you, the more I did for you, the more things I did for you, I thought they were stupid things the man was telling me to do. What I didn't know was I was learning service. And if you're new here, we got a code word for the word love. And we call it service. That's what we do for each other. Because if we don't, we will die of alcoholism. We have to give it away to keep it, or we will die of this disease. And uh, when I would go with him in these 12 steps, I'd see these guys' eyes change and see them get in AA and get their driver's license back, <laughs> you know, and get their wife back. Ah. Uh, <laughs> all these, what I thought were stupid things to do, turned out to be loving actions in the name of service. Mother Teresa was in our area a number of years ago, and she had a heart attack. And a couple of AA doctors, the cardiologist, took care of her. One buddy of mine said, you know, you couldn't be in the room with her and not know she was a spiritual person. And some reporter asked her this question. I tore the, she was in the paper, and she answered him, and I tore it out and kept it for you until it fell apart. What Mother Teresa said to this reporter was, the fruit of faith is love. And the fruit of love is service. And the fruit of service is peace. The promises say, I will comprehend the word serenity and I will know peace. And the fruit of service is peace. You know, I was almost two years sober and was working my butt off in AA. Already was an intergroup rep. I didn't know what the hell an intergroup was, but I got in there because the man said to do it. And I couldn't sleep one night, and so I got up and was reading the big book. That's always good if you can't sleep. Not as good as the manual. Oh, the sure cure for insomnia is the service manual. You're gone. But I was reading the book. It was about 3 in the morning. I was all alone. And I saw them I, at the bottom of page 83 and the top of page 84. I saw them almost two years sober. The promises. And for anybody who's new, we're not here to not drink. We're here for the bottom of page 83 and the top of page 84. We are here for the promises. To know a new freedom and a new happiness. I sponsor a ton of guys. And for me, sitting in that front row and seeing a guy I sponsor give a cake to a man he sponsors, that's a new freedom and a new happiness. It said, I will comprehend the word serenity and I will know peace. And it says I would comprehend serenity. I always thought serenity was some kind of a hot flash experience, you know. One time when I was young, I, I was going to have a mystical union with the one. And I was sitting on the bluffs in Bakersfield there at dawn, naked, uh, to have a spiritual union with the one. And I had a spiritual union with the Bakersfield Police Department. Put the naked guy in the car, Harry, let's go. Put the naked guy in the car, Bobby. Let's go. 
But I, I read all those promises. It says that I would comprehend the word serenity and I would know peace. <laughs> right in the middle of the promises, the sneaky Bill Wilson, what a sneaky man he was. Right in the middle he puts how it comes true. He says no matter how far down the scale we'll have gone, we'll see how our experience can benefit others. And the, my favorite line in the whole book, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. Now, Bill was a grammarian. He loved grammar, as I do. And he knew that was not grammatically correct. It should be these feelings of uselessness and self-pity. He knew exactly what he was writing, didn't he? That feeling of uselessness and self-pity. You show me a loser, I'll show you a guy who doesn't even want to pick up a chair. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. And that's how. And I've read those promises, and right at the end of the promise, 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm low, low into there, and it said, are these extravagant promises? And I got hysterical. Because I told you what I was like. I was a nut. I was crazy. Insane. And they'd, they'd started to come true. Now, I tell you, they started to come true because I've been doing what the man said. I've been doing everything the man said, the, prom, the steps, the actions, and everything. So they started to come true. One more thing I want to add, because I don't want to go as over time as Bobby did. That's disgusting. Uh, <laughs> it was a great talk. Interminable, but great. You know. <laughs> we keep track of these things, don't we, Bobby? <laughs> You can tell me how long I took when I finished. Uh, it'd be less than him, I'll guarantee you. I talked about service. Well, I finally got put into formal service. My sponsor said, you're going to be a GSR. Okay. And I went on and told her, I'm going to be a gisser. Uh, that sounds like something you could do. Uh, and for the next number of years, I was a GSR and a DCM and the area treasurer and the area secretary and the area vice chairman. Finally, I was the delegate in panel 26. Panel 26, Tina. 77 and 78. I'm not on the board yet. Uh, but I never have resentments. I'm beyond that. Uh, and I, was, I served as a delegate for two years for our area. One of the great experiences of my life. My buddies, you know, they were into H&I and other stuff. They used to tease me all the time. They'd say, here comes the AA politician. <laughs> here comes the politician. How about the politics, Cliff? You enjoy it. And I used to say to my buddies in those days, I used to say, I'm doing this because I want AA to be here for my kids if they need it. And I want it to be AA. I don't want it to be some watered-down, psychologized bullshit I wanted to be the program the little electrician brought to me. I wanted to be AA. And here is 30 some years later. Our youngest son has almost 20 years in the program of alcohol. Like your uh, chairman said, hold your applause till I'm finished here. 
Our middle daughter uh, had 12 years of sobriety and then got a bad back and took pills. And I have no opinion on pills. They'll cut you off in the sunlight of the spirit and kill your ass dead. But I have no opinion on them whatsoever. And, of course, she drank again. And uh, she has over six years now, though. And she's a school teacher like her daddy. And uh, the hashish salesman has six years. He's a functioning alcoholic, but he almost died the last time. Pat talked about this afternoon. She went up there, and he just came that close to death. And uh, he's been sober ever since. You know, he got, finally got sober up with these bumpkins up there in the state of Washington, kind of people I always make fun of, country bumpkins. But they stayed with that guy, and they loved him, and they nursed him back. <laughs> he's sober today because of them. And he, uh, he's a world ex- expert on coffee, growing of coffee. He <laughs> <laughs> beats the hell out of the stuff he used to grow. <laughs> but he travels all over the world in his business. He goes to a third world country and he you know, does studies of the soil and the coffee plants that they have and makes decisions of what plants will be brought in. To cross the, then the volunteers follow him in and help the people. They don't have to be third world countries anymore. They're going to have coffee that's really worth something. So he goes all over South America and Central America, and he speaks Spanish fluently, so he goes to meetings all over there. And he goes to meetings in Nigeria and Somalia and Ethiopia. And his favorite meeting outside of his home meeting in Washington is Zambia, Africa. It's in the uh, Canadian consulate there, and they look for it. He gets there about six times a year. Here comes Dave. He doubles the meeting. Uh, But he loves that meeting. He said his sharing in that meeting is incredible. And I envy him, really, except for the flying. (laughs) Uh, He can have the flying. And so he's got six years, and our youngest daughter has never needed the program. She was seven when we got here. She's just fine, except she's had to have a lot of outside help. But she's a great gal, does well. And uh, our daughter, eldest daughter, Kitty, kind of went wrong. She's been in Al-Anon about 20 years. Kid can't drink. <laughs> she said, she said, well, God, when I drink too much, I get sick and throw up. My youngest says, you get by that. <laughs> like you failure. <laughs> but she's a terrific speaker. She speaks all over the country now. She started out going with us, and now they don't call us. They call her. She's terrific. Kitty, kitty. And, you know, if you could have seen our family on a given night 38 years ago, and if you could see my family today together, no human power could have relieved my alcoholism or that family's disease. But Al-Anon and AA have put that family back together again. I, uh, I you know, when I go on a 12-step call and take the guy to a meeting and then see his eyes change. And I get to where I study eyes in AA. I love to look in your eyes. Because that's where I find the higher power. And uh, have you ever known somebody who's been sober a long time and they drink again? You go look in their eyes. And if the absence of the power does not prove it to you, then I don't know what will. 
few weeks ago or a month ago, I was reading Walt Whitman again, he Leaves the Grass. And in Leaves the Grass, he has this line where he says, Why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see God each day and in each moment then. In the eyes of the men and women, I see God. And in my own eyes, in the glass, thanks.